is for your joy to be full. Ignatius of Loyola in the 16th century, a Spanish kind of, I don't know what you would call him, a mystic theologian, he says this as a definition of sin is unwillingness to believe that God's will for you is your perfect joy. (laughs) So today is an invitation for all of us in this room, for Jesus, whether you have received him by faith at some point in your life or whether you never have, today is an invitation into fellowship with him. We're going to continue this theme over the next at least week on other aspects of fellowship, but today we're going to talk about fellowship with him. So, let's dive into that. Jesus came so that we could have spiritual fellowship and relationship with God. I know that that's, that's not news to a lot of us. That's not news, but it's just so profound. It's worth talking about all the time. He came to re- reconcile us to relationship. So, I'm going to try to open this up while I, there we go. Um, when, when I, my life, I believe is, is something of a testimony to this idea that I just said, that he came to restore fellowship. So I, I grew up in a denominational church background. Um, we went to church every Sunday. I never heard anybody tell me about like having a relationship with God. It's more like you should pray and you should do all of these things. And um, it was in my senior year of high school that I had a class uh, in the private uh, school that I went to, private Catholic school, nothing against Catholics, I'm just sharing my story, um, and, and I, went, I went to a private Catholic school, and there was Father Lopez, who was oversaw the religious studies at my high school. Father Lopez was unlike any other priest I'd ever seen. Usually priests were like, you know, they wore the, all black, and they had the, the collar, and they were just kind of like spooky, you know, to me. Like, they were always kind of morose and kind of dour and kind of very serious. And this guy was full of joy. In fact, some of you may remember, you might be old like me, oldish. Uh, do you remember MC Hammer, Too Legit to Quit? So, like, he, like, did the, you know, Too Legit to Quit. Some of you think I'm a loser. Uh, but, but back in that day, it was cool for a Catholic priest to be doing that with people. And, and, and so I was just intrigued by this guy, very intrigued. And... I came into class one day, and he had everybody uh, go through this exercise. I'd like to do it with you today, in fact. And he had us all shut our eyes. Could I ask you if you're comfortable just to shut your eyes? And he asked us all to picture in our minds the picture of Abraham Lincoln. And so I had his image in, in, in my mind. Perhaps you can come up with that image yourself. He said, what does that, what does that make you feel? And, and, and so I was looking in, at this image in my mind, and, you know, he's kind of gaunt, He's kind of thin. He's got kind of sunken eyes. Very recognizable face. It's almost like I've never seen anyone else who looks just like him. But he's got kind of that wavy, kind of curly hair, tall and thin. And he says, what does it make you feel? And it's like, it makes me, you know, I don't know. It makes me feel good about some of the things he accomplished. Like, you know, it's just a historical figure. He says, I want you to erase that from your mind now. Now I want you to picture your best friend. And I remember in that moment, I was struggling with my analytical brain to try to figure out, who's my best friend? Is it Luke? Or is it Alex? Or maybe it's my girlfriend, Shirley. And, and so I just kind of go through all these different, and I, okay, I'll just picture all three of them. <laughs> and so he, he says, picture your, picture your best friend. Study them. What, what does that make you feel? And I, and I thought to myself, you know, okay, I mean, that makes me, I know them. They know me. They know I know how to make them laugh. They, they know what makes me mad. 
I, we have history together, shared history together. I, I feel something of acceptance and love and warmth with them. And he says, okay, well, scratch that image from your, from your mind now. He says, I want you to now think about Jesus. And he said, how does that make you feel? I, I thought, and I remember in that moment, it was kind of like, well, I, I feel like I should feel something, but honestly, like, I don't really feel a lot. Like, I feel like I ought to feel good about him, but it's not like some kind of feelings thing. And he says, if, if we do not have a relationship with Jesus that's like our best friend as opposed to a relationship with him like we would Abraham Lincoln, somebody we know about, but we don't actually know them, if that's the case, then the whole point of the gospel is not actually working in your life. That made me think. So you can open your eyes. So, so here's this idea, and I opened my eyes, and it's like I don't know if anyone in that classroom had the same impact, but that struck me. It struck me on two levels. Number one, I knew the gospel had not done what it's evidently supposed to do in my life because I don't know Jesus I have an affinity with being a Christian. Out of the religions in the world, I choose Christian. I'm a Catholic. That's what I am. That's, I know that, and I know a lot of stuff about him, and my allegiance is towards that religion. This is kind of where I was. But I don't know him. Nothing like I know one of my best friends. So I was struck with that, but number two, I was struck with the fact that evidently I could know him like that. And Father Lopez had developed with his too legit to quit and everything else enough rapport with me that I knew he was legit. I knew that what he says is true. He, he, what he says about Jesus is, is a real thing in his life. And so I apparently could know him. And, and he says, Jesus said, seek and you will find. And if you don't have that relationship, if you seek it, he promises you, you'll find it. And I, I thought, that is amazing because that particular scripture has been a scripture that I've heard all my life and I have particularly wondered, what the heck does that mean? Seek and you shall find. Does that mean if I like lose something and I'm a Christian, I'm going to find it? I don't know. What does that even mean? And then when he said that, I was like, that makes sense. If I seek him, I will find him. And so I went on in my day. I'm not going to describe to you what I probably did for the rest of that day, being that I was 17 years old at the, at the moment. If I told you much about me at 17, you probably wouldn't hear anything else I have to say this morning. So we'll just, so I went on in my day, and uh, at the end of that day, I, I, I got in my bed, and I had this kind of like feeling like something's missing. And I, I oh yeah, that Father Lopez class. And so I, I began to uh, pray. And it was like, normally I would go through, if I was praying before I went to sleep, it was like pray for, I don't know, what am I supposed to pray for? Like, God bless like the farmers out there and the poor and my mom and dad. And I don't, so and I started praying and I said, God, I don't feel like I know you. And in that moment, something, I don't want to speak too um, mystically, you know, because oftentimes what Jesus does is profoundly earthy. It almost feels very natural, and yet it's supernatural. But there was a supernatural element that I began to tap into in that moment. It felt like this. It felt like God has always been wanting 
to have this talk with me. And finally, I'm responding. And I said, God, I don't feel like I know you. And I felt in my heart, it was like I had his attention. And really, the truth is, he had mine, finally. I said, God, I don't feel like I know you. And there was this sense of, like, vulnerability and realness and authenticity. I'm not just going through religious motions and doing the right thing to do to pray before I go to sleep. I'm being real with God who loves me passionately, who sent his son to die on a cross, that I would have this thing that we're talking about in that moment. And I said, God, I don't feel like I know you, but I want to. I want to know you. And I said, God, you said, Jesus, seek and you shall find. And, and by, I want to make a side note. When Jesus makes a promise, he is honored when we hold him to it. He loves it that we trust in the things that he says. Jesus, you said, seek and you shall find. And I want you to know I'm seeking you. And as I said those words, I can remember realizing I don't even know what that means. How do I seek Jesus? I know how to seek like something that I lose or seek out a person. How do you seek? I said, I don't even know how to seek you, but I want you to know this. I am seeking you. Help me to know how to seek you and help me to find you. In that moment, now it's a, this is not a formula. This is what happened in my life. It happens differently in every person's life. But in that moment, words that I had heard, scriptures, started to come up. And it was like out of the vagueness, the recesses of my mind, I remembered hearing somewhere about confessing sin. And, you know, as a good Catholic, you know, we go to confession, you know. You sit down with a priest and you confess everything you've done since you last confessed to a priest. Some of you, one person knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> and so I knew the kind of confession of sin. And I remember hearing something about you're supposed to receive Jesus as your Lord. Like, I, I, could, I remembered something about that. I don't even know where. And as I'm, I'm, I'm just asked him to help me to find him, and, I, and these, these scriptures come up in my mind about confessing, and I begin to, to say, Lord, I confess. And I started going through this list of everything that I could think of that I've done wrong. And after a while, I realized, I don't know what sin is. I don't know. He's the one, like, I don't, how do I know what sin is? And so I, I said, God, I don't even know what sin is, but I confess that I am a sinner. And it was like in this moment, I realized that it was sin that has cut me off from having this relationship with, with God. No man told me that. It was just an epiphany in that moment. And I said, Lord, I don't even know what sin is, but I do this. I want to give my life to you if you will show me what it is, I want to commit myself to run from it. And so on the back end of that was this lordship thing. And in the tail end of that, I said, Lord, I receive you, Jesus, as my Lord. And as I did, I was just like I had this picture in my mind of Jesus being in the heavens and there now being this channel in between him and me coming in to me where he would be leading me. He'd be my leader. I just understood it. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? For Jesus to be my Lord, how am I going to follow his instructions if he's not physically with me, talking to me? And somehow I knew he was going to be inside of me. There would be some spiritual thing. And I, and I remember praying this. I give, I place my life in your hands. I remember praying that. That night, my friends, I got born again. Now, I know we've used that script, that, that, that phrase, and people say get saved and all these kinds of things. And back when I grew up, if you heard people saying born again and saved, that means run from those people because they're weird. And it was about six months later that I began to put the pieces together because I didn't know anybody else in my life who had had the same experience. 
that's what happened to me. No man did this, no church, no evangelical church. It was, in between, it was me and the Lord. The only person who had any influence at all was Father Lopez. And he didn't even preach the gospel. He just said, seek and you shall find. You follow what I'm saying? For a year from that moment, stuff started getting upended in my life. Stuff that I had never felt bad about at all. In fact, I had reveled in. I started to feel uncomfortable about. Not because some church culture told me that it was wrong. It was inside of me. Jesus himself was making me feel uncomfortable about things that are displeasing to him. Remember what the definition of sin is? Unwillingness to believe that what Jesus will for us is our, our perfect joy. It wasn't that he wanted to change me so that I would not be bad anymore. He wanted to d- deliver me from things that were holding me back from his will. And there was some stuff in my life that was earthbound and twisted and perverted that I was, my thought patterns were all processing around that he wanted to work some deliverance in me. But I couldn't have that happen unless I would yield to his processes. And it took a year. And finally, in my car ride back to uh, my university after um, spring, uh, Christmas break, I was crying in the three-hour car ride back to the university because I felt so bad about stuff in my life that I couldn't change. And I said, God, if, if, if I'm going to respond to these things and yield these things to you, you've got to send somebody into my life. And it was the very next day, bouncing a basketball on my dorm room floor, that my neighbor came over and told me that he had given his life to Jesus Christ as a reason for why some things had changed in his life. First person I ever heard after a year who had that kind of language and understanding. And the rest is history. I got into fellowship in a church and began to change my life. I'm here to say this thing is not make-believe. I know that I know that I know no man, no church did what happened in me. I received Jesus, and he is alive. And he is here to lead his people. And the whole thing of it, in the end, is all about knowing him. Knowing him. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 said that he had given up and counted everything in his life as dung. You can think of other words to translate that expression into. Counted it as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus. That is the pursuit. That is the wonder in all of life. Some of you may think, oh, I'd way rather, you know, watch some, I don't know, I was going to say, like, sports, but we don't have sports here in Detroit. (laughs) Sorry. U of M. (laughs) So, uh, so there's nothing earthly that will ever, ever satisfy the longing of your soul, like knowing him. And that's why Jesus came, t- came to uh, this earth. And if you don't believe me, if you can flip quickly to John again, but this time the gospel of John chapter 17. Jesus, right before he went to a cross, And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the words that he's going to say right before going to a cross are probably rather significant to things he feels deeply. And Jesus says this in the first verse of John chapter 17. He spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, authority over all flesh, 
Does, what is flesh? What are you talking about? That's mankind. Are we talking about authority to, to control and dictate and that every single action that every human on this planet is doing is all because Jesus has made them to do it because he has authority over all flesh? No, that's saying that God has appointed him to be the leader of all of mankind should they choose him, right? Why did God do this? Why did God give him this authority? Well, let's read on. That he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. That they would receive eternal life. That's wonderful, right? That means we get to go to heaven when we die, right? Not so much, yes, but not, but wait, there's more. Read in the next verse, what is eternal life? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life, as wonderful as we imagine heaven to be, Heaven, for some people, is actually not going to be a very good thing because heaven is the rule and reign of Jesus. It is, it is where we know him as he really is. And that is why Jesus came, is that we would know, be reconciled into relationship with the Father and with the Son. That is the heart of God towards all of us in this place this morning. And let me ask you, if eternal life is that, knowing God and knowing the Father, then it doesn't begin in the afterlife, does it? It begins the moment, just like me on that bed at the age of 17. That is the moment that eternal life began. Heaven is in me. I don't mean to sound arrogant when I say that. I am convinced because Jesus lives in me by his spirit. I know he does. Eternal life has already begun. When I die, it's just going to be crossing over into the fullness of what is given as an earnest deposit inside of me now. It doesn't begin in the afterlife. It begins the moment you receive him. And this is the reason that he died, to make way for you to be able to know him. And so what, if, if you think about relationship, if this is all about knowing him, what, what causes us to, to know a person? You think about somebody that you really know well. I would dare say there's two elements to knowing a person well. One is that you are yourself. You know that feeling where you can just be yourself and you know that the other person gets you? You don't have to qualify everything you're saying and talk around so that they can not think that you're saying this, but you're really saying, you, you know, you can just let your hair down and they get you. They understand you, they receive you, and they love you as you are, right? That's... That's not just some like theology. That's like you and I all understand this, hopefully. <laughs> if you don't, like, let's pray for you before we leave. But the second thing is if it's relationship, it goes the other way around, that you receive and understand the other person, that you get them. You get what, what makes them tick. You understand really who they are. You understand what they mean when they say this and that, right? There's something about a relationship. It's the exact same thing in our relationship with God, with the Lord. We know he gets us. The scripture says that he identifies with every single one of our weaknesses. That's the whole reason he became a person. is so that we can't say God would never understand me because he's God and I'm a person. He became a person so that he can understand us and walk through. And it says that every single temptation that we are tempted with, he has been tempted with on all points and has sympathy for us. That's good news, right? He gets us. You could say, well, Jesus is never going to understand. No, he gets it. But yeah, but he was God. Yeah, but he was fully man. He gets it. He gets you. And you know what else? Wait, there's more. He loves you. 
says that God demonstrated his love in this, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the people who already repented and did all this stuff so that finally God could love us. He made the first move. He loved us first. He created us before the fall in love because God is love. He gets you. Who's going to get you more than the one who created you? Who's going to get you more than the one who designed who you are and made you, formed you in your mother's womb, and had a plan for you before the foundations of the earth? Who? There's no human that even gets you like he does. He gets you. You've got that part covered. The question is, do we get him? Do we have an image of God based on some deception of this angry God? Or maybe he's the sugar daddy in the sky, and you just kind of you know, put your prayer in, you get your blessing out, <laughs> or whatever the case may be. It, it, do we know him? That's really the question here. And so let's look at this. How do we know him? Would you like to know? Like to hear a little bit on that? If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Knowing him comes by a divine revelation. What happened to me at the age of 17 was a revelation. It was born of the Holy Spirit. I, get, I couldn't manufacture it. It wasn't about me getting the spiritual test right. I got the answer right. Jesus, confess your sin and declare Jesus as Lord. Ding, 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 you're saved. It wasn't like I got some quiz right. I had a divine revelation that came from God. He initiated. He got it. And so if you look with me, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Why is that significant in this conversation? Because we're talking about getting him. Understanding. Well, that's what Jesus is asking. Do they get me? Do they see me? Do they understand who I am? Why is Jesus interested in this? Because he came to restore relationship, and for relationship to happen, there's got to be the mutual understanding one of another. And so he's asking this question, who do men say that I am? What's the answer that the apostles gave him? Well, some say John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Why is that significant? Because John the Baptist, as of those words, was dead. Elijah, who came according to the scripture and the spirit and power of, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was dead. Jeremiah, dead. One of the prophets, they were all dead. Why is this significant? They were saying, the talk around town, who do men say that I am? They think that you are, in other words, a prophet come back from the dead with a message for this generation. I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that is a high esteem of who Jesus is, right? Pretty important. Jeremiah come back from the dead. Are you tracking? That's, that's a high esteem. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Why is that significant? Because you can never have a relationship with Jesus based on what some other person said. It, it's got to be a revelation inside of your own heart. Who do you say that I am? Let's get down to the brass tacks here. And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. How is that relevant 
The Jews were expecting a Christ, a Messiah, to come and liberate their nation from Roman oppression. They were waiting on this because the Old Testament had prophesied of such. He, the Messiah, the Christ, was exalted even above prophets. It was the representative chosen by God. This is serious business. But what he said after Christ is plumb messed up. The son of the living God. The Jews had not been expected. Christ, Messiah, yes. Son of God in the form of a, of a man, not expecting that. In fact, Simon Peter, you saying that could get you killed. What are you talking about that some person is God's son? That was not expected. There was no way that Simon Peter could have known that, seeing that Jesus had never said such a thing without him having a divine revelation of who God is. How do we have a relationship with Jesus? Through a revelation. Only God can reveal to us who he is. And what did Jesus say to Simon Peter after this? Blessed are you, Simon, your natural name, son of John, your natural father. For flesh and blood, in other words, no man has, what? Revealed this to you. The Greek word being apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse. It's like the unveiling. Some of you women have been married before and you wore a veil on your wedding dress and at the end of that wedding ceremony, the veil was lifted and everybody went from seeing kind of the image of that beautiful face to actually seeing it in all of its shapes and color. You follow what I'm saying? That is the idea of this word. Flesh and blood is not revealed, taking that veil to cause you to see what you just said, but my Father in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter. You're not just Simon. What your father, John, the name he gave you, I'm giving you a new name. Why? Because you have seen who I am. I am now going to tell you who the Godhead has said you are from before the foundations of the earth. You are Peter. The Greek word being Petra, Petrus, means a, a piece of a stone. You are Petrus, a, a piece of a stone. And upon this Petra, this rock, this boulder, I will build my church. What's the rock that he's talking about? the revelation of who Jesus is. In seeing who Jesus is and receiving it as truth, and let me remind you, when Peter said what he said, he was putting his life on the line saying words like that. That was, that was heresy. You could get stoned uh, for saying such words. He could have only said that if he absolutely knew it to be truth because of something that was unveiled to him spiritually. And by seeing who Jesus is, he comes into something of what Jesus and the Godhead had been planning from before the foundations of the earth, the church built on the revelation of who he is. You and I are called to see Jesus, and in seeing him, be, follow him in the vision of him, follow him, and become like him so that the world can then see him. That's how he builds his church. Not by our effort, not by all of man's strength, not by our awesome praise and worship, although I must say uh, my, my friends Josh and, and uh, Zeke do do a good job. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anthem Church, for sending them over here. Not by any of man's efforts. It is by God living in people and us receiving him for who he is just as he received us for who he is. You got it? So what are some points we can take out of this? Jesus is apparently not just a teacher not just a prophet. He's not just a great man of God. Jesus, second point, is 
he is exalted to the highest status above all men, appointed by God as the leader of mankind. One can only see that by a divine revelation, which perhaps is the very next thing. For fellowship to happen with that Jesus, we have to see Jesus for who he is. Now, some of us have issues with authority. Probably all of us do. We don't like this thing of Lord, exalted status. We like to see him on the cross, and he's our Savior, and he died for us. We need both. He's not on a cross. He's not in a tomb. He is exalted to the right hand of God. That's who he is. And it's good to know that he's that. It would be a little scary if that's all he was. But to know how he got there, that he went to a cross, the only perfectly righteous man who ever, or human who ever lived on this earth, dying righteous for the unrighteous. The expression of love in that, it sure is good to know that someone with that kind of authority also has that kind of love. This is good news, right? It's not just an expression. This is good news this thing of the gospel. So how can you receive revelation? I'm glad you asked. You turn your heart to him as he really is. It's something about a humble heart. It's something about a heart that is willing to receive him for who he is. There's something about the pride in the human heart that wants to recreate God into our image, into our likeness when it was always the other way around from the beginning, that God created us in his image. We're trying to make God to be who we want him to be and to have a real relationship. We've got to receive him as he really is. And in 2 Corinthians, we'll just look at this as the last um, piece of scripture for the day. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, it says, We are not like Moses, Paul says, who put a veil. Verse 13, sorry, I didn't tell you that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. Um, we are not like Moses who would put a veil, there's that word again, veil, over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. What are we talking about here? Moses, you may know, he went up Mount Sinai to meet with God, and he wanted to see God, but because God's glory was so radiant and powerful that God couldn't actually show him his face, he showed him his backside. Glad we don't have too many kids here, because every time you say that, they giggle. God showed Moses his back, because that's all Moses could handle. Moses receives the law, two tablets of stone. He writes the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone, goes down the Mount Sinai. He re-enters the camp of the Israelites, and he is glowing with the glory of God from having seen him, from having, reve- having revealed who God really is, seeing him. That's the whole idea here. And they couldn't handle seeing even the glory secondhand on Moses. Never mind seeing directly God. They couldn't even handle seeing God's glory as it manifested and radiated off of Moses. And he had to put a veil over his face so that they couldn't see. That's a picture of the Old Testament. It's having the tablets of stone, the law, the system of do's and don'ts, but not being able to see God. And that's the very thing that God has opened up for us in the new covenant through the cross and resurrection. Is we can see him now. So what's, what, let's keep reading. Verse 14 but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. I had the Old Covenant. I had Scripture read to me for the first 17 years of my life, and I had a veil. I never saw until that night who Jesus really was, and it's the same for all mankind. It, is, it has not been removed because only 
in Christ it is taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Can you say hearts? So much of us try to make God an intellectual exercise. The mind, understanding the doctrine, understanding all the things that we're supposed to know, and all this kind of stuff. He was like Abraham Lincoln to me. I knew a bunch of stuff about him, but I didn't know him. And, and, and relationship is something of the heart. We need to catch that because that's going to help us in our relationship with God and with one another. It's a heart thing. And a veil lied upon, lay upon their heart. But whenever anyone, and if you're reading from the King James, it would say, but whenever it turns to the Lord. What is it? It's the heart. So whether you want to say it's anyone turns to the Lord or whether any, when it, being the heart, turns to the Lord, it's the same thing. When a person turns to the Lord, it's their heart turning to him. Remember that moment when I prayed that prayer? And it was like God finally had my attention. My heart had finally turned to the Lord. Whenever it turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted. <laughs> the veil is taken away. And I want to point out that we're talking, no, let me just finish this. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I have some Detroiters in here. Corner of Jefferson and Woodward, you know the Spirit of Detroit statue with the inscription on it, for the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Important scripture for us. It's the Spirit of the Lord. Not teacher, not prophet, not even great man of God. Exalted one. King above all kings. Lord of lords. Son of the living God. God incarnate, made flesh, coming so that we could know him. That's who he is. So the Lord, I want to just kind of put your, because again, we've got issues with authority sometimes, right? If you felt, let me express what Lord looks like, practically speaking. If, you fe if I fell into a ditch, right, a big ditch, because I'm a tall guy, it's got to be a deep ditch, and I'm down there, maybe I've broken my ankle, who knows, I can't get out of this ditch. And so I start sc screaming for help, help, and somebody walks by, let's say Peter, my son, he walks by, and, uh, and, and he sees me, and he comes to, 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 to the edge of that ditch, and he reaches down his hand, to save me, and I said, I bless your holy name, Peter. You are good. What are some of the lyrics that we sang this morning? Great are you. Great are you, Peter. If I did that as, as maybe, you know, complimentary and, and, and nice that may make Peter, Peter feel, at the end of the day, he's got his hand extended, and it doesn't do any good until I put my hand in his. That's what lordship looks like. He is coming to save us, but the only way to save us is when we submit to the extension of his leadership. We have to submit and put our life in his hands and allow to leverage his strength, the only strength that can get us out of that ditch, and pull us up. And I stand here as one today. I'm not perfect. Some, well, most of you know I'm not perfect. But I can say this. I'm delivered from some stuff that I was bound by 26 years ago. 
And I'm getting more free and more free and more free. Why? Because I'm putting my hand in the one at the edge of that ditch, reaching and pulling me up into solid ground. You hear me? That's what lordship is. Yes, you have to lose control of your life. Let me be straight up honest with you. Sign the dotted line here. Here's what it means. Give up everything. He's your king. But not doing that is losing everything. Doing that is gaining everything. Let's pray.